1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I'm talking with Brad Crumholes about his book, Why Do Actors Train, Embodiment for Theater Makers and Thinkers. Brad, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So I feel like you're kind of setting me up for my first question, um, which is, why do actors train? (laughs) Read the book. Okay, uh, sounds good, interview over. But I mean, in a, in a serious sense, I mean, I, I'm I'm a theater person, I'm a, a playwright, uh, a occasional performer, but not really an actor. And uh, I feel like from the outside, actor training can sometimes, uh, I don't know, look a little silly. I, I don't think I'm probably the first one to point that out to you. So um, yeah, what are actors doing in those rooms? And, and how is that supposed to translate to uh, what they're doing on stage?
2: Sure, um, I mean, it's a pretty... It's a it's a it's a question that, that breeds a lot a lot of uh, further questions. Um, and so the way that the book is set up is it starts with this big question: Why do actors train? And then um, we sort of dig in and you know say, okay, well, let's take an exercise for example, and we start with one little bit of an exercise, and then say, well, why you know another why question: Why would an actor want to do this exercise? What what's it for? You know, and then I try and answer that, and then it says, okay, well, what's you know then why. Um, why would they do that? And it's sort of getting deeper and deeper into these questions. But I would say that you know, if I were to approach it from a, you know, a somewhat uh, wide angle, um, I would say that um, what actors ultimately need to do, regardless of where they are and when they're doing it and uh, what, what form or style they're working in, is that they need to behave on stage in the performance circumstance uh, in a way that uh, fits with the conventions of the time and place and form and allows them uh, to become replete with meaning uh, in a way that is not only acceptable to an audience, but also that really provides an audience with a certain kind of um, uh, a certain kind of experience that allows like almost a direct link to the meaning making that's going on on stage. Um, and that meaning making happens on so many levels. It happens on the level of just basic, you know, can we understand what they're saying, the meaning of the words that they're saying on the most basic level. And then as you get deeper, um, you know, there's the meaning of the, of their bodies of the nonverbal communication. There's the meaning of what, you know, what's called prosody, which is the, 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 the aspect of the language that doesn't come from the propositional meaning of the words themselves but it comes from the tone and the rhythm and the tempo um uh, and all of those flavors that we you know growing up in the world we as as human beings in society we are enculturated to understand these things we gain a lot of information from things that we have no idea that we're getting information from. Usually, I mean, so, you know, unless you're studying it, you just you just sort of immersed in this world of of meaning. And as people living in the world, you uh, one uh, you know gets gets used to understanding that world and you know, more or less you know, to, to greater or lesser degrees depending on who you are. And you know the the theatrical circumstance is not. A quote unquote natural one. And yet it is also a natural one in that it exists, you know, in the natural world. There's people, there's real stuff on stage or what, you know, and, uh, but it's not just observing things in daily life. It is not real. Um, It is realistic, um, but it follows a certain, a certain, certain conventions, a certain system of conventions. And those conventions change over time and from place to place. And But the audience that is from that place in that time also understands what is right inside of those conventions and what isn't right, what works inside of those conventions and what doesn't work inside of those conventions. And they oftentimes process this, on a, almost always, on a completely unconscious level. And so the actor needs to learn how, somehow, needs to be able to, Whether they've learned it accidentally or they learn it through training, they need to be able to live fully inside of the fictive circumstances uh, and become replete with meaning in a way that does not um, point to itself in a way that that will take the audience out of the experience. And just the final note is, even if the style is intended to sort of alienate, like sort of in a Brechtian sense, the audience from that experience, that is still a convention that the actor is working inside of, and that it, that is the convention they have to work inside of. They have to work within the rules of that convention in order to do that thing perfectly well. Mm-hmm.
1: So I take it you're not, therefore, kind of assuming that what it means to to you know perform meaningfully is to kind of merge with the character and and feel the things that they're feeling at the exact same time they're feeling them in a kind of i don't know vulgar stanislavskian sense right definitely not most certainly not
2: uh which isn't to say that that can't necessarily happen i mean i have my own sort of uh critiques or understandings of of what that is as as a director and as a theater maker myself i have my own my own views on whether that's you know good or not or whatever, um, but um, but the book itself is is uh, is not an endorsement of one style over another. It is uh, it, it is really saying that if someone is going to act inside of a inside of a formal convention and everything on stage is a formal formal convention, then they just need to know how to do it well. And so, actor training is the is the way for people to get better at it. Um, If they don't already know how to do it. And I keep saying, I've said that already, you know, in this, uh, in this conversation that, you know, there, you don't need to train necessarily for certain aspects of, uh, of performance. Um, There are lots of people who can just, you know, all of a sudden they're just like, Oh my God, they're just a natural actor. You know, they've got natural talent, whatever you want to call it, but that's just because they know how to do these things already. But if you don't know how to do them, um, and there are lots of things to not know how to do, there are there are uh, pedagogical techniques that are designed to help actors uh, learn how to do these things. And those techniques are not boilerplate. They're always an encounter between a skilled teacher uh, and a student actor. Uh, and, you know, even something like, you know, uh, you know, the the Strasbergian method acting, uh, it's not just like there's this formula and you can just follow it by going, you know, okay, step one, step two, step three. It has to be done in relation to somebody who's guiding through it and really responding to the momentary experience of the performer and the actor and what they're trying to do and where they're, where they're succeeding and whether they're not succeeding and what they're coming up against as an obstacle and how to overcome that obstacle. And so there's a constant sort of improvisational nature inside of the, the formalistic training. Um, and uh, and so I talk a lot about that in the
1: book as well. This is not a question I was planning to ask, but just kind of based on what you just said, it seems like that might be part of the reason. I mean, you're kind of suggesting that acting training you know, needs that kind of dialogic element to it. Is that part of the reason why, you know, so many acting books, even written by people who are, you know, demonstrably great acting teachers, uh, kind of fail on the page? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like uh, Harold Klerman saying the thing that he read from learning from reading *An Actor Prepares* is that Stanislavski can't write. You know, I mean, or or even you know, the the, the Strasberg books are okay, but you kind of don't really understand how how those insights were able to produce uh, or or train the great actors that came out of his studio. Is that, is that part of what's, what's going on here? At some level, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, Stanislavski wasn't
2: teaching from a book. You know, he was, he was engaging with people in the studio um, and he was, you know, he was figuring it out. He was, you know, he was saying, okay, here is, I mean, that's a great example of like encountering convention. There was a new convention that was coming into in, you know, realism was just developing at the turn of the century. And he was responding to that saying, Oh my goodness, well, how, how are the, how are we going to make these plays live? Um, and so he's responding in the living moment to those things. And then in relation to the actors that he was working with, uh, he was coming up with all sorts of um, crazy ways of getting people to, uh, to, to approach something like, um, uh i don't speak russian but there's a there's a word that's that uh that's called i think it's pronounced um and uh and i talk about that in my book as well and it has to do with with being in the moment in a certain kind of flow a certain kind of living flow of embodying the role um and you know, he was doing that in a, in, you know, in a moment to moment basis. And, you know, I don't know if you know the old story about Stella Adler going to, to see him uh, in mm-hmm. France after uh, after she had already worked with Strasbourg in the group theater for a while. Do you
1: know this one? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know if all of our listeners will. So maybe you're, oh, well, you could rehearse a, the, a short the, version the, of it. <laughs> at least
2: the apocryphal story is that she went over there and, you know, she is introduced finally to Stanislavski, whom she'd heard so much about. This is not like nineteen. 19- she, you know, they first encountered his work in, in New York in 1934, I think it was. And then some years went by and she met him and she said, Mr. Stanaskowski, you've ruined me. You've ruined my life. <laughs> and he says, why? And he said, and she says, well, because, because you know, uh, working with, you know, with what I have learned from you has completely made my relationship to acting miserable. It has completely taken all the joy and all the life out of my experience as an actor. And he said, oh no, this is terrible. We need to fix this. And then he's, he's invited her to stay with him uh, and work with him. And he worked with her one-on-one in order to encounter what it was that she was encountering you know, in those moments of difficulty in order to get her beyond that into something that was working for her. And it was a pivotal moment in her development as, a, as a, an actor and a teacher and all that.
1: Um, I feel like I'm just asking you, to clarify what you're not saying so far, but I do have one other question in that line, which is, you know, you talk about how part of being a good actor is kind of fulfilling the conventions of, of your moment and maybe your genre. Um, Are you then suggesting that acting training must necessitate uh, learning as many different types of like sort of conventions of acting as possible, or are you more saying something like, you know, the claim that you'll sometimes hear like British actors making, which is something like, you know, if you can do 12th night, you can do anything.
2: Mm. Um, <clears throat> well, I wouldn't say if you can do Twelfth Night, you can do anything. Um, and I also wouldn't say, you know, if you can do Streetcar Named Desire, you can do Twelfth Night. Um, I would say that, that especially something like Shakespeare really requires, I mean, Shakespeare itself, is, it definitely requires training because, um, because it's, it's, it's so completely removed from the analog of our daily experience. I mean, just the, the language itself is, is old and antiquated and foreign. There's meter. Um, you know, there's, there's so much going on there, uh, stylistically and formalistically that, that one needs to learn how to encounter in order to, in order for it to fly. And there's also so many conventional expectations that people have when they're encountering Shakespeare. And so, you know, when you see a Shakespeare that is, um, that's innovative, let's call it, uh, you know, that goes against the grain of convention, it oftentimes creates a big, um, uh, a big kerfuffle because people are saying, Oh my God. You can't do Shakespeare like that. Well, of course you can, (laughs) but you're just not expecting it. And so you need to, you know, you need to enculturate the audience into a new way of doing Shakespeare. Even if it's just for one performance, you have to, in that performance, you've got to find a way to work with whatever the expectations are, and then find a way to get that audience to accept the new approach to, uh, to the, to the form that you're presenting in a very short amount of time. Um, But to go back to your question, I, 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 I maybe we could compare it, and I and I do a little bit of this in the book um, to uh, to musicianship. So if you're learning to play piano, <clears throat> there are there are scales that one you know scales and exercises and uh, that that one can can learn uh, and practice. And you practice the scales uh, and the and the etudes, uh, and you're working with a teacher who is working with your form and your ability and your uh, your whole instrument is over time through hours and hours, thousands of hours of practicing. You get to a point where, where you are able to play a piece of music right that's written on the page, in, notated uh, in the tablature of the page. You learn how to take that. And translate it into the motion of your whole body which is you know focused in the fingers in these moments but it's really a whole body experience of playing the piano um, and your whole body is responding and uh, playing that music and is what is emerging is not just a, it, it is it's not just technically proficient it's also uh, somehow expressive um, you know one could use the word sort of transcendent it transcends just the the pure mechanics of it that the, the that the, um, the 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 uh, the what is it the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in that, in that circumstance. Now, a piano player, uh, a really expert piano player, should be able to play anything. But it's also true, as we know, that you know there are some piano players who are classically trained, who are classical piano players, and some who are jazz pianists. And while there, you know, while there is the possibility potentially of sort of going back and forth between those styles. Um, you know, one, you know, generally you just kind of stick with one form and you become an expert in jazz playing or you become an expert in classical playing. Sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I don't know that much about it. And so the limits of my analogy kind of end there. But, um, but my understanding is that, the, that someone who can go back and forth between the two of them is, is a, it's a pretty rare example. Um, and I would say the same thing for, for any artist, that artists work inside of a style. Um, And they can they can master many of them. But usually what happens is that they they do it over time. I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at Jackson Pollock's work, for example, I mean, he went through phases of, you know, really very clear, realist, um, uh, realist um, uh, forms early on. And then as time went on, it became more and more abstract. Um, he, I imagine he never lost the ability to do those early forms, but he had to learn how to do them. And there's lots of evidence of him practicing and practicing and practicing. And then eventually he grows into another style and invents it and becomes the master of that. And, you know, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, maybe it approaches an answer.
1: Yeah, I think so. Another thing you talk about a lot in the book is this idea of embodied cognition. This seems to have been a very helpful kind of frame for you to think about what exactly is going on in uh, in a rehearsal room or in, or in a studio. So could you tell us a bit about kind of what embodied cognition means and then, uh, and then also kind of how that has been helpful for you in thinking about what you're doing uh, in, the, in the classroom or in the rehearsal room?
2: Sure. Embodied cognition is a, uh, is a, in in the in my book I refer to it I refer to somebody else referring to it as a uh, as a program of a program rather than as a field or as a, a discipline um, because there are many many different people who use it in different ways and it it, it appears in psychology it also appears in philosophy um, um, and uh, but basically what it it, and there are also many different, different approaches to what embodied cognition is. There's not like one definition. It's like, Oh, this is embodied cognition and everything else is not. Um, but ultimately there are certain common elements to, uh, to various things that are connected to embodied cognition. And, uh, probably the primary one is that it goes against the Cartesianist, uh, uh, belief or understanding, uh, of the human being as a, uh, as a as a binary uh, a dual a, a dualistic uh, uh, combination of mind and body, so that on one hand we you know we're part mind, and on the other hand we're we're part body. And in the Cartesianist um, uh, framework, these two substances, as they're called in, in philosophy, they 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 coexist, um, but they don't. Uh, they're not the same. They're not part of the same system. And so, you know, Descartes really is is quite complex, and uh, and I say Cartesianist instead of Cartesian because there's there's a lot inside of Descartes um, that that actually goes against what has what came to be um, called (laughs) uh, Cartesianist afterwards. Um, But you know, but it's sort of he he and the people who followed him launched this sort of way of approaching the world um, that. Uh, and really made it sort of fundamental to how people see themselves in the world, where you know we have these bodies that that go around and do the stuff like they move things and they procreate and they feel pleasure and they um, they eat uh, you know all of the stuff of the world. they sort of navigate us through the world and get us things and we hold on to things and hit things and all that sort of thing. And then we have these minds, and the minds are kind of seen these days as the sort of com- the sort of computer center uh, in which all of the thinking that we do, uh, and all of the, the language stuff, uh, and the imagination, and all of that kind of exists. It, it's kind of meant to exist in some kind of disembodied mind space, um, just kind of floating out there. And we point to our heads, you know, when we say, oh, we're thinking, uh, and we kind of imagine that it's kind of just up there somewhere, and these words are kind of floating around, and maybe there are letters. We don't know. Like Nobody really thinks about it and, in the daily world. Um, but, the, you know, there's there's a fundamental problem with this, and that it's just not true. Um, and what, what modern <clears throat> contemporary philosophy has come to terms with, you know, they come to terms with it quite some time ago, is is that, uh, is that there's, there is no separation, there's no substance dualism, there's, there's no difference between the, the substance of the mind and substance of the body, that, that actually it's a, you need to look at things in a completely different way. And so embodied cognition understands human experience, human cognition, the way that we exist in the world. Uh, as a fully embodied, fully felt interaction with the environment and that we, the brain is part, it's physical, it's part of our body. It's actually part of the substance of our body and it connects to our spine, which connects to the, the nerves and into the muscles and all of that. Like we are one, uh, one big entity that's moving around in the world and <clears throat> our movement through the world with our senses and all of the bodily elements, including the brain, which is its own very specific kind of organ, um, uh, it, are, it is that interaction and that movement through the world and all those relationships that we encounter in the moments that they're happening that makes up mind. That mind is fully embodied, uh, and this approach um, is is that's the radical shift. That's the radical shift that I'm pushing for in this book. And I'm not I'm not the first person to do this in relation to actor uh, to, to the work of theater, um, but it's certainly not um, it's not necessarily a mainstream view. Um, and I would say uh, that, you know, that that in general, people are kind of behind the curve and that theater studies is quite, you know, quite behind the curve. And just in general, people, uh, you know, I, don't, I hate to speak in generalities. I really try and avoid it. But but it's true that, you know, if you were to go and ask 10 people like, you know, do we have do you have a mind that's separate from the body? Most of them would be like, yeah, of course. You know, they wouldn't understand that the mind is actually uh, uh, part of the embodied experience in the world and it's part and parcel of it. And that there can be no, um, there can be no mind without embodiment. Uh, and that, uh, and there can be no sense of, uh, of body without some with the, with this sort of, let's call it mental function that that goes along with it. And so, um, <clears throat> I know this is kind of, it's a little convoluted what I'm saying because it's quite complex, but I think I give the general, you know, I give the general idea. And the, the point of, Uh, of applying this to theater is to say, all right, well, if it's true that we, you know, that our minds are embodied, then what does it mean for, you know, how one approaches, say, a role uh, uh, while acting? Um, there's been, you know, there's so much history inside of the world of, of, of theater and actor training, which talks about psychological realism and about, you know, imagining, you know, using the imagination and using emotion, which is also emotion is kind of seen as like kind of physical, but it's also kind of like connected to the mind. It's kind of a mental process. And there's this whole thing of, you know, like actors are, you know, often, often referred to as like in the in the pejorative sense as like talking heads you know you've got these plays where actors are on stage and they're saying all of the words and the language and everything but they don't know what to do with their bodies and they're just kind of standing around um, and, and I'm not saying that that good actors ever do this um, but there is a sense in which that the language based theater is somehow the theater of the mind and then there's this other thing called physical theater which is the theater of the body and even inside of our own, Sort of formalistic um uh categories we separate them out you know and you know, and it's it's silly uh, and it's just not true um and you know there is this thing called physical theater because we've created this thing called physical theater but the line between the physical and the mental the physical and the verbal is just it, it there is no line. there's no line at all as a matter of fact verbal theater um is is entirely embodied you need a you need a whole body in order to make a voice Uh, It is not just something that exists in the mind. It's not something that just exists in the mouth. It is an entire body that is required for that. Um, And so my my approach is constantly urging the reader and the actor to rethink their relationship to what it is they're doing with this new concept, with this new conception, with this new way of saying, oh, right. You know, when I approach this character, when I approach this language, when I approach this text, how is it possible to do that in a fully embodied way? Or even more to the point, how is it that what I am doing as I am doing this is fully, to, fully embodied already? And how can I, in, in order to get better at it, how can I approach it with, you know, better in, with the knowledge that it is fully embodied? Because if you have the wrong conception of what it is you're doing, then, then what are you doing? You're doing something that's, that's misguided, at least on some level.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
1: Yeah. And this is really interesting because I'm, I'm sort of, I have an image in my head of, you know, a, an acting teacher who's sort of a, a conglomerate of all the acting teachers I've ever had. And and I, I feel like this person that I'm imagining wouldn't think of themselves as some sort of a, you know, hardcore Cartesian dualist, uh, you know, would think of themselves as somebody who who values the fact that that we we have a body and that that does important work but would still say things like you know stop thinking and just act or just be present or or, or get out of your head right is it and that does sort of imply that you know maybe not on a fully philosophical level but at least in a kind of you know commonsensical level a lot of these acting teachers do have a sense of you know the mind and the body as being separate even if they're maybe you know valorizing the body part of that more than the mind part they they are still erecting a separation right
2: I 100% agree, and I think one of the um, things I'm trying to do with this book is to offer a, 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 a lens through which people who are teaching, for example, can can understand what they're doing in a, in a little bit of a different way. Because if you were to ask some of these teachers that you, you know that you refer to, like your teachers, <clears throat> would you you know you say if you ask them what their stance on Cartesianism is, they might you know after a moment or maybe immediately say like oh no there is you know there's obviously yes of course there's no mind body split we are fully embodied blah blah, blah. but they there because there's a paucity of um of that kind of approach inside of of pedagogical technique and in t- technique in general uh it's 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 not um it's not it's not steering the ship that knowledge is not steering the ship it's kind of like left behind somewhere in the wake um and, and so I guess what I, one of the things I'm trying to do is to say, hey, look at this. Look, look at what it is that we are already doing. How can we understand it differently? And then how can that actually affect um, your ability to teach better, uh, to lead people through their obstacles in a way that is actually more in tune with what's going on with them or, or um, on, the organ, on the level of their organism. And you know, all organisms are also social organisms there's no, there's no, there's no human organism outside of society. There's no unenculturated human organism. You know, the closest thing we have to that is like Tarzan and even Tarzan had, you know, had, had a society of apes, you know, Um, but, and, and it's fiction, (laughs) but, um, uh, but all, you know, all human organisms are social and socialized and enculturated and at the same time, they are also fully embodied. And so, if you have a teacher who's able to see all of that and to really understand what's going on with an actor with a student in a given moment in relation to these questions i think that they would be better better situated to sort of help them to help them grow
1: Another thing that occurred to me uh, reading your book is, is that it seems like performance studies might be an especially kind of fruitful field to apply embodied cognition to, because with very few exceptions, performance studies is a field that is uh, done by people who are both kind of scholars and practitioners. I mean, like yourself, you you are, have written this book that's drawing on you know theory and philosophy, and yet you're also a a, a director and you you teach acting, and that's true of most people in this field. That no, there are very few people who are sort of pure theorists in performance studies. Is that part of the reason why you you sort of want to bring these two in, in closer dialogue?
2: Mm. I wouldn't say it's part of the reason why I want to, but, um, but I would be, I would be glad to know about it happening. Um, I think part of the reason why I, I want to to do it is, um, is, is, mm, is for general people in general who are interested in this kind of work to just, uh, to understand things a little bit, a little bit differently. Um, and also, I mean, maybe more along the lines of what you're saying is there's, there's this one part of the book where I refer to, um, Um, who I refer to it's um, I'm losing, I'm losing it. This is one scholar and it'll come to me in a second um, who talks about the, the really problematic distinction that is made inside of actor training programs where you've got movement, you know, you've got movement in one classroom and then you've got voice in another classroom and then you've got character in another classroom. And, and, you know, maybe some actors in a program take, you know, take a little bit of one and a little bit of another, but there's not necessarily a real sense of how they're all integrated Aside from the fact that, that it's up to the actor, the student themselves to, um, to sort of figure it out, you know, and to say like, oh, well, I'm taking, taking my movement class on Mondays and Wednesdays and taking my voice class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I've got my character class in the next semester. And I'm the one who's the common element, you know, who's, <laughs> who's experiencing all these things. And so somehow they must be working on me in some way. Um, but really, you know, it's like, like you just said, like, oh, leave your mind outside of the classroom. You know, in the movement classes, like leave your brain outside, you know, don't overthink all, all these kinds of things. Like it would, it would be just so much better if, if a program could be uh, designed that was, an emb- was, was designed based in embodiment, that was based in the, the, uh, the fundamental understandings of, of embodiment uh, that I'm talking about in the book, for example. And so the program itself is designed in order to help the actors um, synthesize. Uh, and live through all of this stuff and understand where their you know where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are and where they need to move in relation to a in, in relation to a much more holistic approach. Um, and I know that programs are always seen as holistic, but i but I still would say that um, Joe Roach is the guy's name. <laughs> uh, Joseph Roach. Um, uh, that you know, as he said in one of his in one of his books that uh, he talks about the you know the 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 uh, nature of, of this kind of separation, uh, between these disciplines that, that exists to this day in in so many, so many training programs. And so I, I would love to, I would love to see a world in which that changes. I would love to see a world in which, um, you know, in which that approach is more fully understood. And also I think, you know, maybe this is also an important point is, is that, um, there, there, there are two things that, that I'm hoping also that my book can lead to on one, you know, at least be a part of a change in the culture at large inside of actor training. One of them is, you know, the problematic nature of uh, of psychological realism uh, and specifically the method. And at least in some forms of the method and how it sort of like it it requires people to um in a, in a kind of disembodied way to approach their memories and things like that, that, it, um, that often creates a lot of emotional and psychological problems inside of the actor as they're doing these things. It's getting better over time, but this is a sort of a longstanding problem. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of the times the, the, the actor-student experience is incredibly mystifying, and mystified, in that they're told to do things and they don't exactly know why. And they've said, oh, that's working and that's not working. And they, they don't really understand why. And ultimately, they become something like a pawn that is, um, you know, this sort of uh, manipulated, as it were, by the professor. And there's a lot of exploitation historically right. that has happened and continues to happen inside of that circumstance. And whether it's exploitation with a, you know, writ large or whether it's just these sort of mi- micro exploitations in which the actor, the acting student is just meant to trust the outside eye. Um, of, of the director, it really puts the, the, the human actor at a disadvantage and it really sort of disempowers them from understanding what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's not like we can't understand uh, why we do certain things inside of actor training. It's just that nobody, uh, not too many people have articulated it. And so I feel like if I can articulate it and people can really understand what it is, then they can look at what they're doing and have some kind of um, ownership over the process. Uh, and to say, "Oh yes, this is what I'm doing this is why I'm doing it, and this is why it's working well and this is why it's not working well
1: and one thing that also does obviously is just create this very hierarchical relationship where all of the the sort of knowledge is 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 held by the instructor and and is is never really uh, fully transferred over to the student who's meant to apply it in their own acting career
2: exactly and this you know it's it's just really unhealthy it's sort of this guru guru uh, um, uh, Model in yeah. which you know there's a little bit of worship going on there. There's a lot of charisma that happens, and it's just not necessary. And only is not not necessary. It's just kind of harmful and gross.
1: Yeah, for sure. Could you talk a bit a, a bit more practically about how this understanding of embodied cognition actually affects some of the specific exercises that you you teach and that you talk about in this book? Sure.
2: Um, well, the way the book is organized is there, there are five sections. There's a there's the 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 overview section at the beginning, which talks about embodied cognition and what it is, and sort of how I'm approaching everything in this in the book. And then at the end, there's a section that I call after thinking, which is uh, sort of a, a look back at the things uh, that I didn't really get to talk about too much in the book itself, uh, and that would require maybe other volumes. Um, but then the, the main body, three chapters. Um, each one is devoted uh, uh, conceptually to a particular area uh, of theory and also is grounded in its own exercise. And so um, I just happen I choose three exercises, one for what chapter, for the first body chapter, one for the second body chapter, and one for the third body chapter. Um, and they're exercises that I either developed in my, on my own as a teacher and director over the many years that I've been uh, practicing. Um, and you know, or one that I've learned uh, during that time that I've been teaching a lot, and so I just know it really well. Um, I think mean, the important thing is that these are just exercises that have clear elements that I know really well, and in my mind, they can they can you know you don't need to know what these exercises are in order to in order to understand what's going on. My my hope at least is that is that someone who doesn't know the exercises but is familiar with exercises of their own could read it and say, oh, okay, I don't know this one, but the explanation for why it works actually makes a lot of sense to me because I know this other exercise that's kind of similar to it. Um, so, um, so I mean, to get a little bit more into, into detail uh, to respond to your question, um, there's, there's this one exercise that I talk about, which is one that I invented called the three layers. Um, and it sort of sh- uh, simply put, the three layers that are in the exercise happen sequentially, but they don't. Uh, but once you finish one layer, you continue. You add the second layer to it, uh, and then on top of that, or with that, you add the third layer. So that by the end of it, you're doing all three layers at the same time. The first layer uh, is the layer of the senses, um, uh, mainly um, seeing, hearing, the feeling of touch uh, with the skin. Um, and, um, mainly, mainly that, uh, those are the three main senses that I, that I deal with. Uh, I don't, I don't really deal with, um, the I don't know, taste season. and I don't, smell. I, don't, I don't deal with taste at all. Smell like you know, a little bit, you know, smells kind of secondary, but, uh, and I, and I do incorporate that sometimes, but mainly it's those three. Um, and what I do is I, I ask the actors to engage in some very, very basic, just being there and awakening those senses. Um, and then the second layer is beginning as you move around the space to pay attention to the joints of the body on the inside and how they are moving and releasing around the tension around the joints and finding a freedom in the joints, sort of scanning through the whole body. And then the third layer is the, the movement of the, uh, the movement in space in relation to the environment and the other people in the room. Um, so it's the layer of the space. So, um, so, with that as a general framework of the exercise, what I'll point to is that one of the things that happens is that there becomes a um, uh, a battle of attention, a sort of internal battle of attention inside of the doer. Um, whenever you add a new layer, whenever you add a new layer, it all of a sudden becomes very difficult to get to pay attention to the one you were just doing. So, you know even if you're just going from like, okay, you're looking around the space, you're seeing with your eyes, you're really taking in, you know, moving, like looking around, seeing details of the space. As soon as you add in, even, even inside of the first layer, as soon as you add in the hearing, then all of a sudden you stop seeing. (laughs) I mean, not everyone does this, but the tendency in general is that there's this tension between even just these two sensory modalities. And, you know, and so, so the effort of the exercise is to find a way that you can be alive in your seeing at the same time as being fully alive in what you were hearing and understanding that these two modalities are, um, uh, uh habitually, they, they, they are not working in tandem with each other, but through the exercise you have the ability to make them work in tandem with each other. And this is generally geared towards a, uh, towards a, a, a more full functioning of the sensory modalities inside of the actor. And then inside of the book, what I do is I say, okay, well back to the question, why is it, why is it that one would need to do this as an actor? Who cares? What's the point? Well, um, there's, there's a theorist, um, whom I really love. His name is uh, Alvin Noe. Uh and uh, and he has he's part of a, a group of people, uh, but he's one of the, the prominent people in this group uh, that talks about this this idea of inactive perception or inactivism, and the idea behind inactive perception is that um, is that perception is action and action is perception, and that our our the process of uh, of perceiving. Um, in with our various perceptual modalities is actually uh, a fully embodied action in the space and requires a certain kind of physical know-how in order to be able to perceive. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, it gets, I, I, I sort of pull apart and tease a lot of the complexity of this concept, but, you know, if you just use that as a basic, you know, idea of what he's talking about, then what you soon discover is that um, is that, training of the actor right the, the the word act is inside of is this little, the the core of acting of acting and act, actor training and the actor to act in the world is to perceive and if you are if you have the ability to perceive in the world you in order to develop that you need to be able to move through the world with a certain kind of know-how and facility um and and vice versa in order to be able to move through the world with a certain kind of know-how and facility you need to be able to um, uh to develop the, all your perceptual modalities to the fullest extent possible now i just say also that you know um that everyone has a different set of perceptual modalities available to them um, some people don't have the sense of sight some people have different kinds of sense of sight some people are are, 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 are don't have hearing um, but i would say that each individual has their own set uh, and that that set is built in with their way of moving through the world. And so that know-how, their ability to do things in the world, is bound up with the limitations that they have of their own set. And their own set can actually be developed in relation to their moving through the world. And so um, I want to I want to sort of strike the notion that this is... Um, <laughs> that there's any kind of ableism uh, uh, engaged involved in the theory that I'm putting forth. It's uh, it really is taking into account all of the differences that each, that each person uh, has. And it, you know, this I'm working at, I'm working on the level of, of, uh, of neurology uh, and neuroscience here. And so um, and, and so there are certain things that, you know, everybody more or less has uh, and, uh, and that's, that's kind of like the
1: field that I'm working in. Mm-hmm for sure. Great. Um, I'd also like to know a bit about how writing this book affected your own teaching and, and your work with your theater company, if it did, or, or maybe is this book more kind of a summary of things that you knew, uh, that, or that you learned along the process of teaching that you then wanted to kind of record in, in, in the book, did, did the writing of the book itself change your artistic and, and pedagogical work? Um, I would say it's just de- it's been a it's
2: really been a life uh, lifelong fascination for me, um, but I didn't necessarily know what what the fascination was in the way that I do now. Um, I remember so I run a company called uh, North American Cultural Laboratory, um, uh, or NACL as it's known uh, in 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 the world, um, and it's I founded it I co-founded it in 1997, and shortly after that uh we started a um a journal uh which is kind of like at the time it was like an eleven by seventeen sort of um paper <laughs> the one two sides of an eleven by seventeen paper uh with lots of little articles on it and we sort of sent it out as a newsletter for a company. Anyway, it was called the periodic table to kind of go along with the NACL sodium chloride thing. Um, and and in one of the early uh, periodic tables, which must have been like, I don't know, like around 2000 or before um probably around 2000. I wrote an article called the art of picking up a cup. Uh, it was a short little essay, but in that I was talking about, uh, some of the things that I I've ended up 30 years later writing about in this book about, uh, there's even this one section where I, where I refer to in this, in, in, in why do actors train? I refer to, um, what an actor needs to be able to do in order to pick up a cup convincingly. Uh, and I use the example of, uh, You know, on one hand, you know, the the cup is supposed to be full of hot liquid, or the cup is full, or the cup has a tarantula in it, uh, or a scorpion. And, you know, it's not that the cup has any of those things, but the actor's imagination, that the actor's embodied imagination, needs to be able to uh, let the audience believe that that is what's going on with that cup. And so in order for an actor to pick, pick up a cup as if there's a tarantula in it, for example, um... There needs there's a whole fully embodied network of things that need to happen on a very, very micro level um, that the actor needs to be able to do in order to convincingly portray the sense that there is, you know, that there's this potentially deadly tarantula inside of this cup that this character is going to pick up. Um, so you know, I started writing about that a long time ago, but from the level of really just from the level of of my interest in in uh, in, in the body, that I was engaged with then. And then over time, I eventually went to grad school and I went to the PhD program at the CUNY Graduate Center. And I started taking philosophy classes. uh, And all of a sudden, I I encountered this whole world of embodied cognition. I said, oh, my God, all of the things that these philosophers are talking about um, are so directly applicable to to theater and to theater training and all the stuff that I've been fascinated with my whole life. And that's when I decided to, to to write my dissertation on it. Um, I thought, oh well, nobody, you know. There's there's one amazing um, philosopher named Mark Johnson who I believe teaches out at University of Oregon, uh, and uh, you know he writes a book called uh, um, "The Meaning of the Body and Aesthetics of Understanding," and inside of the book he talks about uh, the relationship between aesthetic pursuits and uh, and this kind of embodied cognition approach, um, but he only talks about uh, music and no, visual, visual art, music, and poetry, I think, uh, and he kind of mentions dance once, but he doesn't mention theater at all. He doesn't mention any any dance aside from this one moment. And I'm thinking to myself, how is it possible that this that this brilliant man who's taught, who's who's understanding so much about embodiment inside of the arts is not approaching? the one art form that is the most fully embodied (laughs) of all of them. Like it's using all of the faculties that we, that we have, including voice and all of this. He's just not writing about it. so I said, Oh, well, I need to, I need to finish his, I need to take his work as a starting point and move forward with it. And so that sort of comes as a long answer to your question. um, But, but so it's deepened my, it's deepened my um, obsession. uh, And it's given me a way, writing this book has given me a way to talk about these things in a way that, that I feel, Um, is grounded in a certain kind of knowledge that I can point to. And it's helped me understand the world and also uh, the world of theater uh, in a deeper way, but it hasn't, hasn't redirected me in any way.
1: Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for that answer, Brad. (laughs) Sure. So we're. I think we're about at the end of our time. I just want to remind our listeners one more time that the title of the book is "Why Do Actors Train Embodiment for Theater Makers and Thinkers" by Brad Kremholz. And uh, Brad, thanks so much for being on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful new book.
2: It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.